Aw, yeah, you know what that sound is, don't you? That's a crisp, refreshing coffee is for closers from Full Steam Brewery in Durham, North Carolina. My guest today is Sean Lilly Wilson, the founder of Full Steam, and he's about to tell us how someone who hadn't ever homebrewed came to start one of the region's best, most interesting microbreweries. Sean started out simply wanting to enjoy a true-to-style IPA, but North Carolina's laws prohibited the brewing or sale of anything higher than 6% alcohol by volume. So he got to work changing those pesky laws and ended up with the right relationships to start not just a brewery, but a brand. As you're about to hear, it's the way they created their story that helped them get a real foothold and continue to grow. So put that coffee down, grab a cold one, and enjoy. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. So Sean, you got into the beer business because, not because you wanted to open a brewery, but because you weren't real thrilled with the laws at the time regarding the alcohol limit that was allowed for a, I guess, what, canned or bottled beer in North Carolina, right? Yeah, any kind of beer, draft beer, uh, any packaged beer. But yeah, my path into beer is kind of non-traditional in the sense that I didn't start up a brewery because I was a home brewer or... uh, had some kind of brewing expertise that I wanted to, to take from my backyard to go commercial. Um, but instead, I worked on this legislative challenge um, in the mid-2000s. Um, it was called Pop the Cap. And uh, at the time, North Carolina restricted alcohol by volume in beer to under 6%. So a brewery couldn't brew beer above 6%. Retailer couldn't sell beer above 6%. We were one of five states with this restriction. And um, it wasn't really about the alcohol percentage as much as it was being able to brew to style. Um, I mean, you brew, and an IPA should be 6 to 8% in general, right? Um, a barley wine should be around 9 or 10%. Um, all these beers were illegal for 70 years, and it was just a stupid carryover from Prohibition that needed to, um, needed to change. So I, with a bunch of other people, worked on this legislative effort. Uh, just as a volunteer, as a kind of grassroots lobbying endeavor. And during that time, uh, that two and a half year process, I realized I loved craft beer, I loved the people, and I kind of considered myself an entrepreneur in waiting. Um, and that was a good time for me to, uh, to, to break away and to start my own business. Right, so it, so it wasn't that you just wanted a stronger beer, you just wanted to have a proper IPA or a proper style of beer available to you as a consumer yeah and it's true it it really was not about the alcohol percentage itself it's about an ipa should be in this range uh uh you know a belgian ale should be in this range and um and just the 
glaring inconsistencies that that um, where beer was the only beverage with that restriction um, imposed upon it. it. It'd be akin to saying, well, you can have a Pinot Noir, but you can't have a Cabernet, or you can have a, a white Zinfandel, but you can't have a fortified wine. Um, you know, it's just one of those goofy laws. It was really an inertia. It's just somebody needed to to put together, and people needed to put together an effort to, to change it, because legislators aren't going to take that on on their own. Um, so it was really a consumer-driven initiative. Right, and what were you doing before? And and when you were doing that or whatever it was, was it a full-time job that you were doing this legislative push on the side, or did you quit that and this was gung-ho? So I started, uh, when I when I uh, first got involved in Pop the Cap, I was um, underemployed, to say the least. I was definitely looking for work and um, struggling to find meaningful work. Uh, I had then turned my passion and attention to craft beer. Uh, I also found a job, but it afforded me some flexibility. I actually had two jobs during that three-year span that afforded me some flexibility to, to pursue this, but not inhibit my ability to just get work done. So I worked at the Duke Alumni Association for a year, and then I worked at a company called Weather News out of um, San Francisco. Uh, is a weather services, uh, Japanese-based uh, weather services company of all things. Um, but both of those, um, uh, in different scenarios for different reasons, they both kind of afforded me time to be able to explore um, this or to pursue the the role of leading Pop the Cap as well as kind of start thinking about what's it going to look like for me long-term? What do I really want to do? All right. But it's, I mean, it seems like a big undertaking. Anytime you want to change laws, it's, in my mind, not oh something God, that's fun. Yeah, it, well, it was a blast. It was a crazy challenge because it was so interesting and full of political rhetoric. But we had no idea what we were doing starting out. I mean, we literally, we were like, let's, let's get a petition going. I mean, we, like, wasted a number of months just bumbling through thinking like, well, of course you need petitions to change laws. That's how it works, right? And I mean, it was so naive. And this is coming from somebody with a master of public policy. Like, I I dig public policy. I, I like the mash. I, I mean, I have a love-hate relationship with politics, but I had no clue how to actually get a law changed. It wasn't until um, one of our board members was like, we need to talk to a lobbyist. I know somebody. Um, and uh, Teresa Castrava, uh, we uh, became our lobbyist and, and really led us to getting wise about how laws get changed in North Carolina. That's when things started getting um, positive momentum. All right, we're going to go off on a tangent a little bit here then. So if uh, petitions don't work, what, what is a good first step if somebody wants to get laws moving in the right direction for their own business yeah, or their personal issue or whatever. The, um, the thing to do is to meet with your elected officials, to contact them, call them, go uh, arrange a meeting, say, uh, you're my elected official and I live in your district or I work in your district or I have a business in your district, um, to establish that relationship, to get to, to get to know them, to have them for bre- uh, brewery owners, for business owners, uh, have them come visit and see what happens. Um, particularly in the beer world where um, we have a good story to tell that we're creating jobs we're, we're drawing from North Carolina's agricultural traditions um, we're in manufacturing um, and you know what who doesn't want to visit a brewery I mean most 
legislative uh, elected officials will want to do that versus other things that they might have to do. Um, so uh, really that one-to-one -one contact is, is really key. All right, and then you guys got a lobbyist to help with the cause. Was that critical or do you think you could have done that without a lobbyist? It was critical. We would not have gotten it done without Teresa, for sure. Yeah, and part of it is the um, the sort of, for lack of a better term, sausage making of how bills get changed. And um, we were in an interesting position because we, as a consumer-oriented grassroots organization, had no leverage. We had nothing to offer. We had no quid pro quo. We were just some uh, loose group of uh, of beer lovers across the political spectrum who had nothing to gain um, directly from this law change. In fact, I remember meeting with some elected officials and one, one guy in particular, he's like, all right, I'll hear you out. What are you here for? I explain the law. And he's like, literally, he's like, that's cute. That's all well and good, but why are you really here? I'm like, no, I mean, that's like, all I want to do is spend more money in North Carolina. I have no other agenda. So nobody in your group was an actual brewer or had a brewery? We had, we had support from breweries. We had support from uh, businesses like Total Wine. Um, and so we, we enlisted and created levels of um, sponsorship to basically pay for the, um, the lobbying effort, right? The lobbyist wasn't free. Um, she did offer us a very attractive rate, knowing that it was going to be hard for us to pay what a normal lobbyist is, is worth. Um, that's air quotes, by the way. <laughs> I mean, worth, uh, but whatever. You know, like we, it, 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 again, sausage making. It's, it's, uh, it's a murky, murky world. But we could only raise so much. Um, and uh, she worked within our budget, but we also had business sponsorships for sure. As for the membership and the... Um, the uh, the leadership, sorry, the leadership of the organization. Um, we were all volunteers, either just beer lovers or loosely affiliated with the industry. Right on. So the lobbyists then it, it brought, I guess, a relationship probably with the representatives and the uh -huh. people in the government, but also yep. the, just the knowledge of how in the world to go from hey, this is what we want to do to making it happen. Yep. Uh huh. Okay. So how do you find a good lobbyist? Like when you, did you just call around or? Um, our guy, Eric had an in, he's just like, uh, I know somebody who I think would be a good fit. And for us, we we're pretty visible. Um, campaign topic issue, hot button. Um, and so, um, Teresa was pretty wise to realize or acknowledge that, um, that it would be, it could be something that would increase her like visibility, um, and uh, and like that kind of hot topic issue would be um, something that would get her. I mean, some people weren't willing to take it on because it's too hot, the hot button of an issue. But um, she saw that as a as an opportunity, and and I knew that we were going to win when I saw. Um, two old school legislators walking in the hallways, not knowing we were there, not knowing who the hell we were. And amongst themselves, one of the guys asks the other, y you heard of that pop the cap law? What you think about that? And I was like, you know what, we're gonna win because they're talking about it, right? That's all, and that, that was that moment of like, 
we're going to get there. And, and, you know, it took two and a half years, but we, we successfully raised the cap from six to 15%. Okay. And that, that happened in 2005, right? Yes, sir. And then five years later, you started full stream brewery. So what, what filled that space? And when did you come up with the concept for full steam? Um, well, I, uh, I started gaining confidence that I could work for myself. So I had mentioned that I worked for Weather News. I was a consultant then and kind of um, worked out, not out of their main office, but I established my own home office. Um, and so one of the things that had brought me a lot of anxiety and uncertainty was um, how do I, how do I um, work for myself? How do I pay for health insurance? Um, how do I manage um, pulling away from the corporate world? And uh, Weather News was a good first step in testing that out um, just by establishing my own office and kind of like learning more about what it what it took. Um, I then ended up taking a, a job as a kind of a freelance writer um, and, and, and really my own consulting company um, where I did work with um, uh, did a lot of writing basically. And that pulled me even further away from working for another business to where I was like, oh, I'm my own boss. Like, I'm doing this, right? Um, and I mentioned health insurance. That was a big consideration for me because in 2006, I was um, diagnosed with, well, I had already been diagnosed with, um, but I, um, the, the shit hit the fan with um, kidney failure. So um, I knew that I was... Uh, my my kidneys were failing. Um, I first received the diagnosis about five six years prior, and um, it was at that point that um, I was in dire situation and um, was actually on dialysis. So my um, my wife gave me a kidney. She was a match, and she she donated a kidney. So that was a big part of um, what was happening in my life then. Um, how I was able to um, get health insurance. Uh, uh, both through my current employer and then long term, knowing that that was a consideration, um, and to gain elements of confidence and knowledge that I could pull away from working for others and figure this stuff out for myself or for my own my own business. All right. So again, a little tangent because I want to really talk about how you launched a brewery. But the working from home thing is is. Uh, an issue that seems to be a hot topic. I've got a bunch of friends that have tried it, whether they're working for a big company or for themselves, and they're just like, man, I don't know how you do it because I can't stay motivated. So when you, what were some of the ways that you motivate yourself to stay on task when you're sitting at home with a million things probably trying to distract yeah. you? Well, during that time, I had two small kids. So uh, what I learned was um, I couldn't actually be at home. So I ended up getting a small office um, and uh, um, leasing that out and like literally going to work even though I was going to work in a um, you know in a in a little suite by myself uh, it was almost more like a co-working situation where there were other people around me um, because it's too hard for me uh, to, to work at home and and actually get anything done All right um, so for those for those people out there who are like um, you know, how, how can I do it? I had too many distractions. I totally relate because it was impossible for me. Um, but I figured it out by literally reporting to work and going to a separate location where I was at work. Um, and then I could leave that at that time, leave that, um, 
and and come home. So this whole time, was your wife working and helping to pay the bills while you were doing these other things? Because I guess you probably weren't getting paid anything while you were volunteering for the Pop the Cat. Yeah, I wasn't getting paid uh, for that. I had my, my steady day jobs. Um, my wife has been um, homeschooling our kids for a number of years. And at that time, I think she was, the kids weren't fully homeschooled then, so she was working some. Um, but, uh, I mean, I guess this would be another another thing is, is uh, for us it was really important to not live um, beyond our means. So we've always um, led a pretty humble lifestyle. And um, that was a big key in, in actually getting the business started is that I didn't have um, a huge mortgage. Um, I drove a 96 Toyota Corolla until <laughs> about two years ago. Um, and I mean, it's not for everybody, but uh, it would be a lot harder to be able to do what I'm doing now if um, I had um, high overhead. Right. So you're, you liked beer and you worked on this legislation and then there must have been some seed planted during that time. What was the decision? How did you come up with the decision to start a brewery? What made you want to do this? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is the kidney failure part where uh, literally that drove the, the name full steam to live life full steam ahead and, um, you know, blazing forward with purpose and pride, not looking over your shoulder, worrying about what other people think of you, um, you know, to be on this, this mission and this quest for, for me, it was not only a quest to explore what it means to be a Southern brewery, but also, um, how I uh, try to live life. Um, so our F is backwards because we're looking, our logo is a backwards F. Our, we're looking backwards towards our food and um, farming and, and beer history, but we're moving full steam ahead um, in uh, redefining what that means. Um, so that is a, a symbol for both the business and for, for my life, you know, looking back at what shapes who I am and who I, uh, as, a, as, a, as a family person, as a, a community-oriented uh, person, um, and, and thinking about how we, you know, how I uh, drive that forward. Right. right. So what I find particularly interesting is that you weren't a home brewer, you weren't uh, really brewing in any regards, but you started a brewery, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the people who start breweries are the ones they have this romantic notion it's kind of like starting a bike shop right like i love bikes i want to open a bike shop i love beer i, I love brewing i want to open a brewery and you on the other hand you just like what was the invitation or impetus to start a brewery if you weren't already brewing? i was definitely an outlier i was way unusual to be a brewery owner who didn't have a brewing expertise and i approached it a lot more with a with a much more um, much more of a focus on marketing and um, using social media and kind of building the name of what we were planning on doing through um, well like what we were talking about earlier through through blogging and kind of long form um, writing and, and um, connecting with people online right uh, so that was a way different approach in 2008, 2009, when we were starting to really build um, some momentum around our plans. We also did tastings and previews um, using um, small batch beer um, out of my then home brewer, uh, head brewer's homebrew um, uh, uh, rig. Um, so we would do preview, sneak peeks, kind of pop-ups and all that, all mo much more on the kind of marketing and um, guerrilla, yeah, kind of guerrilla marketing um, tactics and process than 
um, than than any brewery was doing at that time. Now it's kind of more commonplace, but combining that um, uh, marketing approach with my non-traditional background presented some challenges, particularly in fitting in and <laughs> um, feeling like I belonged in the industry. But frankly, that's where I excel. Is like I don't, I'm not a good fit-in kind of guy. Like I work best on the fringes. Um, I think that's where innovation happens, and um, you keep from being casual and and comfortable and and a little lazy sometimes. Is if if you're in an in club, um, you're working within a system, um, and they may be the cool kids. Uh, they may be. Uh, the, in the know, and they may connect you to other people who are in their club, um, but uh, it's not who I am, really. I, I, I like working on the fringe a little bit, so it worked well for me starting out, and I think it's worked well for us, um, you know, seven years later. Were there other business types that you were considering? or Oh, you mean you just, to start something up? Yeah, like, did you just know, hey, I want to do a brewery, or were you looking at, well, I could do this, or oh this? Oh, my God. So, <laughs> when I was... I mean, this makes it sound like I just throwing darts, but uh, I mean, I looked at starting up a crepe restaurant. I mean, like I, I it's a good thing we're not recording or anything like that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I was all over. I just knew I was like, oh my God, I'm so ready to, to be my own boss. And I have all these interests and passions and man, so it went from, uh, obviously beer 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 but you know other things that i looked at was food service the crepe thing i'm trying to think of what other things were in you know like just fleeting kind of stuff i think my wife and i talked about making soaps once sometime like you know it's just the idea of creating um doing something and and being your own boss um but uh but beer was definitely the where it was at for me I mean without a doubt of all the things to start it's it's, this one seems to have some of the highest barriers to entry in that you need a lot of equipment if you're going to do it at scale especially but also like the logistical issues of the different laws and permits that you need to do an alcoholic product what were like what was the startup process for this well um you know, the barriers to entry, yeah, there, there are some, but at the same time, there's 200 breweries in North Carolina, so uh, um, we, we all figure it out eventually. Um, but um, a lot of it was around that initial uncertainty about, is there a difference between brewery and brew pub? Um, we're not going to do a restaurant so much it's going to be more about manufacturing and making beer and we wanted to do food and now seven years later we're only now figuring out what what food is going to look like for us but we knew that we were going to be a production brewery first and so i remember starting out early on thinking there was some distinction in north carolina between a restaurant oriented brew pub versus a production brewery and by law and by license, there really isn't much of a difference. There are regulatory considerations, you know, from the health department standpoint and all of that. But um, really, that, that there were a lot. Of, I just had a lot of misinformation, things that I was um, misinformed on that I, I just had to um, suss out for myself and figure that out. Were other breweries helpful for you guys? Like, did you talk to other brewery owners? And some, ask them some do? were. Some weren't so much. Um, for sure, uh, you know some are more guarded than others, but um, uh, we found in general it's a pretty 
collegiate, congenial um, industry, and um, folks are generally willing to share, and and that has to carry through to um, us doing the same. Um, so that's one of the things that that uh, you know that I've looked to give back uh, from like my role with um, five years in the North Carolina Craft Brewers Guild, spending a lot of time um, helping other breweries start up and looking at that as part of my mission is like, you know, I want to give back and, and help that in a way that others did kind of guide me along and, 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 uh, and, and encourage me in, in that startup process. And so right now it's 2017, you've got, I think you said 14 different beers you guys brew in-house? Yeah, about that. And then how many employees do you have now? Um, 24. What did that look like when you started? How many beers did you start with and how many people? Now that's a simple, deceptively simple question. Um, we had uh, five beers when we first, four, four beers and then five beers. Um, we, so you see our tap system here. We didn't have that. We had it up against the wall. Um, the taps came out of the wall. We didn't even have a basin or a bin. We had a big bucket. <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? I mean, it's amazing what we started with. Um, we uh, we were very lucky in the local. Our timing was just good because our local community was eager for a brewery that had a public-facing component to it. There was another brewery in town, but it was more of a production-only brewery, um, and uh, and so they were very generous with us as we figured out and, and have been as we've kind of worked through our um, foibles and learning curve and all that um, you know we we have a much more um, smooth customer experience now with a point of sale system versus like a plug register you know like literally like you know something like grandmother would have had um, and uh, so it's a much better customer experience but we had four beers on taps on opening day and um, we had probably Three, four, five, five employees, and some, and a good number of part-time people. To, as the bar started getting very popular, so from day one, you guys had an open bar along with the production side of it in the back. Pretty much day one. Was, I think it, it, like we had like a week, week and a half where we were just distributing beer first um, before we opened this up. And it was that man. So many questions. So. It seems like you could go a number of ways. You could do what you did where you had both. You could just do production and distribution. Or you could do just production for on-site sales, you mm -hmm. know? And, I mean, you guys kind of, like, started with everything at once. Was that... That's a lot to start with. Yeah. <laughs> why, yeah. why not limit it? Why not start small with, like, just on-site or just I think, retail? Um, well, you certainly can and, and, uh, and should. <laughs> um, <laughs> We wanted to let people know that we were um, a production-oriented brewery with a tavern component. Um, so that kind of both-and approach was very important to us. It wasn't until a little later on that we started working with third-party distribution where another wholesaler takes the beer for us and handles the distribution part. So that folded in later, and that's an important and growing third element of our business. Um, the on-premise tavern is critical because that's your highest profit point. I mean, your, your margins are so much better on-site when people are drinking the beer that you make right here. Um, and that helps fuel the less efficient, especially early on, um, just distributing brewery where you're, instead of taking a 
a keg and selling a keg for 165 170 dollars to um, a retailer you're able to take that um, that beer and sell it on site at five dollars a pint right um, that matters especially early on it's only when you grow up and you get more efficient with like the equipment even that we're getting today that you saw right that's going to help us make beer at a lower cost of goods to compete in the distribution area um, but we we couldn't I mean, I want to say we couldn't have one without the other, but we could have just gone on-premise. Um, I think our equipment, we were, we would have not been making beer as often as um, our capacity allows if we had just done on-site. It was also a big risk. I didn't really know how many people would show up, you know? Right. And so you've been in this building from day one? Mm-hmm. Because you guys can't, can't see this listening in, but... Full Steam is an amazing uh, consumer-facing brewery because it's got a, it's in a warehouse, but the whole front, at least half, if not two-thirds, is just like an open beer hall. And you guys let people bring in their own food. You can bring a birthday cake and have a party here as long as they're drinking your beer. Oh, they can come and not drink our beer, beer if they want. I mean, how are we going to monitor that, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, so um, we we definitely, there there's some community-oriented events where we open up the space and say yes, and we know that they're not going to be, um, you know, spending a whole lot of money um, here. But maybe they'll come back, or maybe they'll bring a friend. So um, we are in the business of saying yes. Um, we want to make an all-welcome, inclusive environment. Um, and uh, um, even when we start doing our own food, we're still going to allow people to bring in other food. Here, um, part of our one of our core vo- values is um, quiet confidence, which is always funny to me about talking about quiet confidence as one of our values. Because if I'm mentioning it, it's like it's not that quiet if I'm <laughs> blathering about it, right? But I think it's relevant here in that, like, we we have a quiet confidence about what we do. In that, like, we're not going to not let you bring in outside food when we're doing our own food, or we're going to feature guest taps on tap when we don't have a beer style that they do really well that we don't do, right? Um, there's a, there's a, a holistic approach to our, to our vision, which is like, bring in outside food if you want, but you know, we're gonna have some really good food here, right? Or we have really great beer, but if it's not for you, that's okay. Or they make really good, you know, a really good, I don't know, Scottish ale or whatever it might be. Um, or we're particularly proud of this beer made from a friend of ours who also brews with foraged ingredients. Um, so, uh, kind of rambling, but, uh, but the on-premise experience is, it's constantly evolving, but, um, I finally getting to a place where I'm like, I feel like it feels like home, you know, like I'd hang out here kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. And I actually wanted to ask you about the concept cause you know, you're in Durham, I'm in Greensboro, you know, we're about 50 minutes away from each other, but the first beer bar that I saw like this was yours. We heard about it and we like drove to Durham to come check it out and hang oh, out. Fun. And then yeah. a year later we get uh, Gibbs in Greensboro, which has a similar format and a couple others now have opened up in downtown Greensboro that use the same. Yeah, you can kind of bring in your own snacks and food if you want, yeah. but you know, they're selling their beer. Was it, did you guys come up with this or did you no. borrow this idea from somebody else? I mean, I think it's like, it's form and function and it reminds me of this thing that I saw last week that was like um, on on Facebook, which is like a series of images that said like craft beer starter kit, right? And it had like Edison bulbs. <laughs> it had literally those same damn um, 
bar stools that we have, <laughs> the same exact ones. It had like seating like we have right now with the long seating. And I was like, damn it, <laughs> you're funny, but you suck, you know? <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, six of the eight things were like, yep, that's our space, you know? Um, bar in a box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, I mean, I mean, you just need the Mr. Brew, right? <laughs> that's it. That's all it takes. Um, but, um, I mean, there's... There's, so it's form and function. There are some functional things that just make good sense for us. I mean, these tables, um, these picnic benches that were on our German-style beer hall um, benches uh, that have a functional purpose. They are, I think it's 22 inches um, wide. They're a little closer than your standard benches because it's meant to facil facilitate conversation. So, like, if you notice, like, we're here, like, it's just a little bit closer than, like, what normal American, you know, sense of distance is, right? Um, that's, that's by design, right? Um, and other, like, you know, is this function or form, the, the big barrel doors here? These come from an old fermenter, um, a, a Falstaff Brewing um, a fermenter, where you can see, like, the BBL marks and the notches right there. Um, and... Uh, but it also serves as a way to separate the um, conditioned, air-conditioned bar from this big, um, you know, less than conditioned open space. Um, and it has a neat kind of throwback visual element to it as well. Right. So, yeah. Well, it seems like good marketing too, kind of like w w even when you started up with uh, opening up to consumer sales immediately, it, it draws people in, gives them somewhere to go, something to talk about, and kind of put your brand out there as something cool and different as opposed to just having it pop up in a store one day and right. hoping somebody finds it on the shelf. Yeah, and not just opening the doors, but also curating uh, on-premise um, activities that speak to who we are. So we're heavily engaged in the community. Again, we have a spirit of yes. Um, where we're hosting a lot of events, either directly or indirectly. A number of them have a give back um, element to them where we're donating a portion of proceeds to a nonprofit um, or uh, somehow uh, tying in our love of community with, um, with, uh, with a nonprofit or our own efforts. But um, I'm trying to think of like what's going on this week or soon the last tuesday of each month is um belly dancing and beer <laughs> and so we literally like we'll have um middle eastern kind of music on stage musicians about eight of them play for um this open um kind of open to all all types all experience levels um belly dancing uh troupe or organization that encourages um women of all different skill levels and experience and, and all that from the very beginner to the most, you know, like professional, you know, uh, and it's just like, you know, here at a brewery on a Tuesday night, right? Um, Suman's setting up here doing her Indian food. Um, she's been a part of uh, uh, a full steam every Monday night for like the past five or six years. Tonight we'll also have um, a wine and design class um, where attendees can draw, a, you know, and get a coaching on, on art and keep their their bull that they're drawing with with them. Um, last weekend we did 
um, postcards to elected officials where we supplied the postcards and the postage and had um, uh, over 500 people write their elected officials on whatever they wanted to write. We didn't tell them what to write. We didn't say, oh, well, you can write these. If they want to send a letter to their elected official that is like in support of that person, um, then that's what we want. You know, if they want to send, if other people want to send and say, you know, I wish you would do this and this, uh, then that's what we want, right? We just want that civic engagement. And our goal is to be a, a front door, a welcome center, and a community hall for Durham, North Carolina. Right on. So we're going to backtrack a little bit to the startup process again. So you, you found your master brewer. So you were going to run the business side. He was going to run the actual brewing process and create the beers. Did you know this guy? How'd you find him? And then did he bring his equipment or did you just kind of, then you have to go out and buy all this equipment? Sure. Um, so Chris Davis was our first head brewer for um, three and a half years. And Brian has been our head brewer for um, about three years. Um, and uh, Chris and I met each other through a uh, beer dinner. Um, it was actually a pop the cap uh, type uh, dinner after the law had changed. I clung on to Pop the Cap and I did these events celebrating North Carolina craft beer and beer culture in North Carolina. And I would just do these traveling events trying to figure out what it meant for me and for the industry. And so um, he and I met at uh, one at Carolina Brewery where we were showcasing the five um, GABF, Great American Beer Festival, award-winning beers from 2006. So that was over a decade ago now, which is kind of like, wow, you know, to think that far back. Um, he was a home brewer. I was thinking about starting a business, a beer business. I have no um, real expertise in brewing. Um, he was a very dedicated um, and, and is a very dedicated uh, brewer um, at that time on, on the home brewing side of things. So he had his own rig. And we just started testing batches out. What size rig? Because you've got huge, what, sixty barrel tanks. Yeah, no, 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 yeah. Right so he's on he's on a, a like a kegel systems basically, you know. So he's working on on a three vessel keg system, um, just cut open old kegs. Was there right. what was the learning curve to go from doing keg sized batches to sixty keg sized well, batches? Well, we all we had. Um, there's so many parts into all in all of this. We had another person help us out, Brooks Hammaker, who um, was the um, one of the original brewers at Abita, um, and he done a lot of consulting. So he came on to help us out, and he brought in a lot of that expertise on how to scale up. So how do you go from a homebrew system to um, a large scale manufacturing system? Um, and the first beer that we brewed on the new system was. Um, a basil farmhouse ale and we just did it as a one-time like let's see if this works we've never brewed it before as a little test batch no one's ever seen it um, and it ended up being a big hit for us so um, that beer uh, became what is now southern basil which is one of our best sellers in the um, summer months um, and uh, it actually turned out great that very first time that we brewed it I think we had more challenges not scaling up from the small system to the larger but in figuring out the nuances of the large system and how to make it work consistently. What kind of steps do you take to ensure consistency from batch to batch? Well, now we do a lot more because now we have a dedicated yeast wrangler. Uh, we have a lot more QA, QC um, equipment in place. And, um, and we have 
James's job is to do just this, is to just ensure consistency, um, yeast viability, um, temperature control, all uh, with Brian's oversight on the brewing process um, to make sure that um, we're working with um, clean equipment, clean yeast, clean high, viable healthy yeast, um, fresh ingredients, um, so uh, at the right temperature, so yeah, we're constantly learning. It seems like ingredients is going to be, in my mind, a big challenge. The, one of the biggest challenges is consistency from month to month, season to season. You know, things grow differently. Yeah. How do you ensure that not only are the ingredients coming in close enough to the ingredients before then, but then also that you're doing well, the right thing? Sometimes you lean into that. So, like that, I mentioned the basil farmhouse ale. One of the things that one of the unique elements of that particular beer is the story of how it is inconsistent right and so we celebrate the fact that that beer doesn't taste the same throughout the season we ferment at slightly different temperatures basil evolves from may to you know september basil is not the same um doesn't have the same taste right it has a uh, a vibrant, punchy flavor in the beginning of the season towards a, a more woodsy, anisey flavor toward the end of the season. And so one way to control is just openly acknowledge and be honest with people. Yeah, the, the beer is different because beer is agriculture. That's cool, right? right. <laughs> um, now, we don't want to do that with our IPA. And we were just talking about, um, Brian and I were just discussing about how this year's batch of Amarillo highly prized, sought-after hop, seems to have a, a slightly different spice characteristic to it than it has in, in years past, which can lean more into a little bit more melon and, and bright kind of notes. So, you know, what do you do about that? Um, but... Um, well, can you? I mean, do you blend then, or do you just you say, can blend, hey, it's going to be different? Um, with a hop like Amarillo, you can sell it because it's in high demand, and you can use something else. Um, but you have to be adaptable for sure. Yeah. Well, it's particularly challenging for us because we use a lot of local seasonal ingredients. And, um, and so we, we can explain it away pretty easily, um, with a beer like Southern basil, but, um, say our first frost, the persimmon, the winter persimmon ale, uh, made with forage native persimmons. I mean, those will, those will taste different from year to year. Um, depending on the harvest and the conditions and all of that. So we do a little bit of blending to set aside um, and just kind of fold in different seasons as we can. Um, but uh, in some, some, some instances, you will have a, a, a different beer because you have different growing seasons. But the more we can remind people that beer is agriculture um, instead of just manufactured, um, then I'm fine with that. So the, you started with five different beers, mm -hmm. and what was the startup cost, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> uh, and, and I don't mind you asking, but I don't want anybody else to <laughs> right. know. No, right. I'm just kidding. No, I'm, I'm happy to tell you, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, so like, what were the startup costs, and where did that capital come from? Um, $1.2 million to start out. Wow. Yep. And uh, remember, I'm a guy with 96 Toyota Corolla, uh, so it was a wagon, though. So it did have that. So you could deliver beer in it. I delivered beer in it. I totally delivered beer in it. I smashed the back window, uh, hitting a, you know, a, 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 a what are the speed bump thing. Um, and the, you know, the keg just, you know, the, the, that's just what happens when you start out. Um, but uh, we are an LLC. We have 20 investors. 
of that $1.2 million, about 75% of it was um, the equity investors from individual, um, you know, uh, uh, high net worth individuals, and the rest was a, a bank loan from um, the SBA and a local bank. How long till you guys were profitable? Um, it, profitability is a ever-changing target, and I don't mean that to be elusive. It's just how do you measure profitability, um, particularly when you're taking um, your earnings and folding it back into your own expansion. Um, so we were cash flow positive after about um, 10 months. So nice. it was a nice turnaround, but that's only because we had um, good on-premise um, traffic helping to fuel this. Now, that does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that we're making it big, right? In fact, last year's our, our net net was really, really low because we're expanding and growing and we're growing in areas that are not nearly as profitable as the on-premise, which is leveled off. Um, but um, our third party is growing, but that's a very low profit margin. You mean third, par third party distribution? Yes, sir. Yeah. Because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in North Carolina, you can self-distribute up to X number of barrels or cases, and then after that, it has to run through a an established distributor or wholesaler. Yeah. What's, that's, how did you find those wholesalers, and what are some of the challenges in dealing with them? Sure. Just real quick on that limit, um, it's 25,000 barrels brewed in total, so it's not um, the amount that you self-distribute or, or it's how much you make it's tied to your production level so we're we're gonna we're on target to do 7,000 barrels so we're shy of that but the way we're starting to grow we'll be hitting that before too long that that limit so um, we a lot of it for us is trust um, well for anybody it's trust that's not very particularly insightful um, we work with Tryon distributing statewide other breweries will work with um, wholesalers, a number of wholesalers, particularly in the Budweiser network, which is a lot more patchwork. If you go with the Bud network, you're going to be working with like Bud of Asheville and the local Bud wholesaler in Greensboro and the one in the Triangle and the one in Green, uh, Charlotte. Um, so you're working with a lot of different um, Bud-oriented wholesalers that have a craft beer focus and stitching them together to um, cover the entire state. For us, we saw the value of going with a wholesaler who really aligns with our values, with our customers and client, uh, our target market, um, and just covering third party for us throughout North Carolina. And we've generally done that, well, we have done that with all the other states that we work with, the three other states we work with. So South Carolina, we have one wholesaler there, Alabama, Virginia. Um, and we just like the, it's higher risk, because if it goes awry, then you, you know, all your eggs are in one basket, but um, it works for us. Do you find it challenging to get these wholesalers to focus on a smaller brand like you when they might have a, some giant brands in there that they can just go in and write orders for? Um, yes, the further out we get from home, for sure. All right. How do you deal with that? Well, um, send threatening letters. <laughs> um, the dog poo and flames thing um, that works. Classic. It's it's a classic, but it works. <laughs> um, uh, no, I. It's we're fortunate in that we're we're growing so much locally that we can we can deal with the fact that we're having attention 
deficit challenges in other markets by just slow playing it and being like, you know what, it's all about local right now. And, um, and understanding that it's a very crowded market. We have a lot of opportunity here. We're going to hit capacity. Um, if all we did was the triangle market, we could easily hit capacity working with our wholesaler, our own self-distribution and our on-premise tavern. So we just spread it out as we can to keep us relevant in other states, knowing that we're going to be a very small part of their portfolio, but kind of an interesting one because it really does force us to differentiate or at least send them products that keep us um, curious in the marketplace, in a very crowded marketplace. So we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we just sent a Pilsner and an IPA and a pale ale to Alabama or to Virginia. Um, but if we supplement that or, or focus more on seasonals um, and curious beers or forage beers, um, you know, not as many breweries are going to be doing that and it helps us um, uh, keep relevant. Right. Do you have a master plan for multi-state growth or are you just kind of seat of the pants type? Um, our plan is in 10 years to be from New Orleans to DC. Um, that's the vision and to be at about 75,000 barrels in, in 10 years. Um, to be one of the top 10 breweries um, native to the South. So not like an expanding brewery like a New Belgium or Oscar Blues, Sierra Nevada, those don't count in my book, but um, uh, top 10 that came from um, the American South. So we have a ways to go. We're like number 50 now or something like that, um, but we are growth oriented and we feel like we have a good story. Um, that might mean that we don't need to go that far and it can, we can achieve that vision in just the Carolinas or just a few states that we don't need to go um, up and down the southeast coastal seaboard or whatever um, to, to make that happen. I don't know. I mean, it's changing. Uh, the beer industry has changed uh, radically since the time we started this interview. Um, it's just like literally changing all the time. Right. So who knows? And so that's like to go from 7,000 to 70 something thousand, that's what thousand percent growth in, mm -hmm. in 10 years so like uh, basically doubling every year yeah. well 100 percent growth every year yeah is well it's about 40 percent growth actually because okay. it's kind of yeah. an exponential math is no but point. you were rolling with it but i was like all oh, like totally <laughs> <Sounds> yeah great <laughs> <laughs> definitely want that so how do you how do you do that because either people have to start drinking more beer or you're displacing other brands you know so how do you how do you guys plan on getting that growth? Great question. I mean, if you look at the success of a lot of breweries with a local focus, they're able to really um, dominate in their local market and achieve those levels um, within a very tight region. Um, so Old Mecklenburg is doing really well. Noda is doing really well in the Charlotte region just by hyper-focusing on the opportunity in the greater Charlotte, Mecklenburg County area, as well as branching out a little bit beyond that. Um, a brewery like Sun King or um, in, in Indianapolis or, uh, well, I mean, maybe when Bells was starting out with its focus on Michigan or um, New Glarus in Wisconsin, um, they're doing really well in their local region. New Glarus is a great example. I think they're 180,000 barrels or something like that all in Wisconsin right so I mean you there's a lot of opportunity for sure um, we just 
have a lot of um, work to do to get there in our immediate local area. I think the challenge is do we um, risk spreading ourselves too thin by trying to be up and down, you know, from New Orleans to D.C.? Um, are we better served um, realizing gains in a concentrated area where you see, you know, full steam just about everywhere? Um, I do ask people, you know, and I'll ask you, like, what's the breakout brewery of the Triangle? So you're a Greensboro guy. Well, what's the breakout brewery of the Triangle? Triad? Uh, no, of, uh, of this uh, region. Uh, for you guys? Yeah. You're the only one I could name off, well, the, top, off I, the top of my head. I don't, you know, we're not breaking out. Like, and we're, right. we're much lower than a lot of other breweries around us here. I guess my answer is because of a rhetorical question. There really isn't one, right? There's no, there's no breakout brewery of the Triangle area, right? If anything, it's a brewery in other parts of the breweries in the other other parts of the state that have done really well in our local market. And so I think that's ours to grasp and others to grasp too. Maybe it's it's not a zero sum game, maybe there's multiple ones, but there's so much opportunity here where we can um, really do well in the community that we love, providing fresh beer that we distribute ourselves. Um, and uh, tied into the local economy, um, where we're giving back to the economy, where we're buying from farmers in this uh, market, um, encouraging other businesses um, here. So it's really about local. All right, and, and so you, you mentioned some of the events you do on site and uh, the giving back in the local community. What else do you do to market it? Because if you've, if you've got really strong distribution here in your hometown, how do you continue to grow that? Because you've obviously you got to get the word out to people who still haven't tried it. Mm -hmm. But then you also really you've got to displace something. Like so, are you displacing other craft brews trying to come in? Are you displacing the Budweiser and Miller Light drinkers? Well, um, I think first and foremost, it's just about being visible and and having um, opportunities uh, for people to choose us. We are not in any main. Uh, triangle area grocery stores hmm. right so you won't find us in Harris Teeter Kroger um, well we're in Lowe's and I consider them a, a, a major one um, but a, a lot of the traditional grocery stores um, we're just not we're just not there yet because they don't want to work with a whole uh, uh, self-distributing brewery and Tryon can't we're bring making that happen okay. so that's a part of the growth is we're gonna say we're saying all right well we have capacity, we can make, we have our canning line that you saw, we can make more beer. Um, instead of trying to convince a uh, Harris Teeter slash Kroger, same company, right, um, uh, to work with a self-distributing company, a uh, self-distributing brewery, why don't we instead just have our wholesaler who they prefer to work with do take care of that for us. So we um, just this week are signing over our distribution in the local market on the chain level to have our wholesaler take care of that business for us. Now that's a lower margin for us, but it wasn't gonna get done anyway. Um, and it's higher, high volume, low margin. Um, so it solves that nugget. So that helps a lot immeasurably with, with capacity. I mean, yes, draft is critical for us. On-premise consumption is a big part of who we are. Um, independent stores are a big part of who we are, especially on the more esoteric side of things. But um, to be able to grow into chain and um, mass retail 
um, to say nothing of like C stores, like convenience stores, which we haven't even scratched the surface of, there's a lot of opportunity right here in our local market. Yeah, well, I think that's an important lesson for small brands trying to get into the big stores is that they don't realize all of the hurdles in getting into them. I mean, slotting fees among them. I don't know if it's slotting fees for beer, but you know, like like so you said, working with a, a distributor that they're already working with, a supplier they're already working with, because they don't want to have to deal with a million different right. people pulling up at the docks every day. Yeah. So. It, it gets murky with um, with slotting fees and and um, and sets and all of that, um, but uh, it's it's a, it's illegal to um, purchase uh, space for alcohol in North Carolina. But you can have um, preferred sets that um, stores work with wholesalers to design and say, okay, well, this is this is the Budweiser region, and this is the Miller region, and this is the indie um, wholesaler, you know, specialty wholesaler region. Um, and so you you have to kind of work within their parameters to make it happen. How do you work out those sets if you can't if the brands or the distributors can't pay for that? Um, I don't know. I, I, I know that the wholesalers work closely with um, the retailers to come up with a, a design that maximizes um, profitability. Um, and that's one of those reasons why you don't really see a self-distributing brewery getting into the chain business is because they have they figured out the machinations and the who does what and, and how it's all legal and, and uh, within uh, the parameters that they set, but within the boundaries of the law, gets beyond my pay grade. Mm. Yeah, taking them on uh, deep sea fishing trips and stuff, huh? I don't. <laughs> special I vacations. Have no idea. <laughs> right on. All right. So one of the other growth tactics you guys are looking into now is you're opening a restaurant. Yeah. To go alongside the brewery. We have so food service. I would call it short of being a restaurant, right? Because that always I always have visions of you know uh, waiters with the. Uh, uh, napkins on their arm and and, and all of that yeah. quick service but probably yeah. gourmet a little a, a, a few touches of cool things that are on the higher end but also just some good everyday bar snacks and what's why why are you doing that oh man your questions are deceivingly simple um we are doing it because um it's time we wanted to start up a food service day one but we didn't have money to because we just needed to open the doors um, we're in a position now where we want to enhance the customer experience and own more of the customer experience. So a lot of times, like with the Beasley's that you just had here, um, I've been behind the bar and I'm like, Beasley's, it's great. We made this beer to go with fried chicken. Uh, Ashley Christensen, James Ward, James Beard award-winning chef. Um, she uh, and and uh, her team and, and, and our team worked together to create a beer that went with fried chicken. And, and here it is. And people are like, that's great. And um, we're all kind of looking around. Do you have anything to like, do you have any fried chicken? Do you have anything besides this moon pie and this jar of peanuts to like um, demonstrate that it pairs well with, with food? And um, be it for Beasley's or the other dozen or so beers that we have on tap, um, we haven't been able to tell that story. Um, that beer goes, and our beer in particular, goes exceptionally well with food. Um, that's a missing component of the customer experience here. Um, we've been very fortunate to um, be a home for the food truck industry. Um, we were kind of the first stop for a lot of um, food trucks early on. Um, 
about a dozen of them, a dozen of them have graduated to their own brick and mortar space, um, in large part because they were able to have a home here, um, or you know, uh, not in large part, but like, I take some confidence and, and pleasure in knowing that that they they got they had some good nights and that this was an anchor for them um, to give them the confidence to either do their own scale up and do their own thing or to not. I mean, you know, more of them have decided they're not, this isn't the business for them, right? Or they didn't have the right market or whatever. Um, and not just food trucks, but other businesses that have come in like Coco Cinnamon came in as bike coffee early on. Um, and now like they're on their third location, their third um, Coco Cinnamon uh, coffee emporium, right? Um, we've had uh, cupcake makers and uh, stock soup and, and like a whole gamut of food enterprises that have used this as a lab of sorts, right? Now we want to do the same, right? We want to have that lab-like experience where we test our food concept and um, pair it with beer and, um, and control more of the customer experience to shepherd it in a way that showcases our beer the best way possible. And frankly, too, I'll say that it sucks when a food truck doesn't show up. Mm, and they don't. They don't always show up. So if you're counting on a food truck to, to be there to provide food on a Friday night and they're, they're AWOL, um, that's a few thousand dollars in lost revenue. And we just can't afford that anymore. A few thousand for you guys? Mm-hmm. How is that? People just don't drink as much or they leave earlier they leave. because there's no food? Yeah. They're just yeah. like, oh, there's no food at Full Steam today. Well, you know, go to the myriad of other options. Op- other options that are uh, in the neighborhood. So the restaurant actually serves two purposes and it helps you sell more beer and you'll make money off the food as well. Right. Cool. That's exactly right. It's actually the the food truck thing is, uh, I I think a good lesson too, is that if you you have something that you just want to test the concept of, you're not 100% sure you want to do it or or what's going to work, then find somebody like you that will let you test the concept of their premise with a pre-existing crowd and yeah 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 you know, so you once go gung-ho. once we open up we we um and and we've mentioned this to the food trucks we're asking them to um uh you know find another home in the in the area or you know in durham um but uh the the every single um response that i've gotten uh from the trucks has been very uh positive and, uh, and affirming um, you know, some people haven't written back, so who knows what they're thinking, but it's been, it's been generally really good. And, and uh, it's, again, it's been time for us. It, we wanted to do the hand pie, um, not ham, hand pie. We're calling them bullies. They're handheld pies that, um, with local seasonal ingredients that go well with, with, with beer, um, bar snacks, and then a play on the meat and three. Um, the traditional kind of workers meet in three with an ever-changing protein and and uh, and, and sides that you can mix and match on. Um, that's uh, I think a fun concept for this space. Um, and I've got in Kyle McKnight and an awesome uh, uh, chef who's going to help make it make it happen. Cool. When's that going to open? Sometime this year. Um, we're going to hopefully phase in a, a, a preview test kitchen um, of it in this little um, galley back here in a month or so. And then um, the full kitchen where the cans currently are, uh, where we're housing those, that's probably about four or five months away. Okay. Sweet. All right. So I want to recap to make sure I'm getting one of the basic ideas that I'm taking away from this. I, so when you first started, it sounds like you launched some beers and, and what helped 
get you guys on the map, so to speak, was that you did some really interesting seasonal beers. You didn't just come out with a Pilsner and an IPA. You did, you know, the basil summer uh-huh. ale. The sweet potato lager. Yep. Right. Is, is that, I mean, do you credit that type of thing with getting you guys up and running? Or was there something else that just kind of got full steam rocking and rolling? Um, knowing and our differentiation, or what, what I call the tilt of the head moment, um, is... Uh, has been really key for us. Um, also, just being very um, intentionally connected to uh, the local community and not in a way that's just like, community is important, but like we're, you know, you know whether or not a business cares about its community um, and expresses that, um, that sort of genuine level of, of, uh, of giving back and, and connectedness, um, I think is the other part. Um, Serving a market need too, a place that was an all, um, all welcome, come as you are type environment that um, defied the rules but worked within the boundaries. So, defied the rules in that it wasn't a restaurant, it wasn't anything that people had really seen before. But we didn't flaunt like, you know, like we didn't break any rules. It's just that like, you could bring your dog, but have a beer. You could bring your kids. Um, but have a beer, and that was a lot more. We got a lot of shit for that. Well, you look um, at the amount of floor space that you have here that's not revenue generating, and a lot of restaurants would look at that, and, and any business would look at that and be like, "You guys are insane," because yeah. the vast majority of the space here is just open tables for yeah. people to hang out. Right. Yeah. It's. Um, I think we'll be able to keep that going for the long haul, where it's not like. All of a sudden, you know, like 10 years from now, you come in and be like, oh, my God, full steam. You're trying to cram in as much, you know, dollar per square foot as you possibly can. We don't own the building, but we uh, we have a good landlord. And we've been fortunate to work on a long-term vision um, to, to be here. Um, and uh, when we first got in, this was looked at as warehouse, manufacturing, storage space, and, and uh um, you kind of get what you pay for, you know, so you have that open air environment, but you also don't have air conditioning right here. You want air conditioning, we're going to have to pay for it because our, you know, it's, it's this play between rent and, you know, landlord contribution versus tenant contribution. And everything that you see here uh, pretty much has been on our own time because we got in at a, at a good time at a lower price. Um, but we don't own the building, so we have these considerations to make in how we evolve the space. Do we keep it open and ambient to where you know it's sometimes hot in the summer, but it'll be cool in the the bar area? All these things that I you know keep, literally keep me up at night as I think about how we make the space continue to work for for the community. But going back to your earlier point on um, what makes the what makes the magic, I do think it's. Um, the connection to the community and um, and the differentiated beers. Now, the beer thing has been hard for us. Can I ramble on that for yeah, a little yeah. bit? Okay. The beer thing has been a challenge for us because I think early on um, we I think people thought we were weirder than we really were, right? Um, so I remember one time being at a local bar and this guy not knowing who I was, so I was just sitting next to him and he's grumbling about how full steam, blah, 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 this and that. And he's like, yeah, full steam. He's like putting moon pies and beer and shit. And it's like, um, 
I had this decision to make. I was like, oh, should I tell him <laughs> who I am? And like, how do you do it in a way that's respectful and not, he doesn't get defensive and all that. And I was like, I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. And I was like, hey, man, hey, how's it going? Oh, good, you know, well, like that. Um, and I'm like, hey, I'm, it's, it's cool, man. Totally cool, but I'm Sean of Full Steam. I'm the, I'm the owner, and I just wanted, like, there's no moon pies in that beer. It's an homage to moon pie. It has some chocolate nibs, but that's not like that. And he got, like, super defensive and, like, anxious and recalcitrant and all of that. And I'm like, that wasn't really the point. Um, it's just I wanted to, like, clarify and be like, there's not moon, like, we don't brew with moon pies. It's in tribute. The Working Man's Lunch is a moon pie-inspired beer because it was a moon pie and RC Cola, the original Working Man's Lunch. So it's cola-colored and it has some chocolate nibs. It's not that crazy. Um, so who's wrong in that situation? Who failed in that situation? Ultimately, I did. Ultimately, it's my fault for not in how I handled that situation, but the fact that we got a customer, that we left a customer stranded on Misinformation Island, right? With thinking that we were, that we brew beer with moon pies and that we're just, you know, we're just goofy and wacky and, and all that because we took them down this path of like, we brew with persimmons, we brew with basil, it doesn't always taste the same, we brew with moon, you know, like, and if the, that continuation of it to erroneous Misinformation Island, that's my fault. Right, so I can't put that on him. We just have to do, be better about explaining the fact that we make um, a classic pilsner, a classic IPA, um, that we make beers with a twist, like Working Man's Lunch, which is kind of its own thing, but doesn't have moon pie in it. <laughs> that we make Beasley's, which you had, that has oh, it's a wit-based beer, but with black pepper, and that we do crazy things, the more unusual things as well. So. One of the challenges in our brand identity is that we aren't just a foraging brewery. We're not just a classic brewery. We're not just a beer geek brewery. We hit on elements of all these different things, trying to be all welcoming, um, trying to serve and cast a wide of a, as of a net as we can. And sometimes that's to our own detriment, right? Sometimes we lose people along the way. Right. I'm going to go off two random directions here. The first is when you say foraging, I'm just imagining you and some of your staff out in the forest actually picking ingredients. Good, because that's what is, we do. Is sometimes. that what you do? Really? really? Yep. Cool. And yep. there's. Like, we also work a, with a collective of people who are foragers that bring us um, foraged ingredients. Right. And then from a food safety standpoint, is that like, how do you, how is that allowed? Do you have to like have it inspected first, or can you just literally go pick? You can whatever just go you pick want and, and make brew beer and you're boiling uh, the hell out of these things anyway so right. it's all fine I mean there's a there's an industry for black walnuts okay um, you, you've had, have you had black walnut before mm, maybe it's just like you never have black walnut ice cream it's that kind of medicinal nutty weird taste that's like a walnut uh, in a parallel world right so black walnut's just a really really unique type of walnut um, I looked into this actually it's kind of interesting um, there really aren't black walnut farms as much as there are collectives of um, black walnut aggregators that take walnuts from different drop-off points and distribution centers. They pick them up and then process them. So this is a little confusing, but basically the nation's largest black walnut producer, manufacturer, um, gets nuts 
from all over the U.S. at these hubs where people bring in black walnuts from their backyard, take them to literally auto repair centers and <laughs> gas stations and grocery stores, um, and then that hub will send them to the manufacturer or the value-added processor to clean them, scrub them, hold them, um, make them into finished nuts. <laughs> so how is that any, like, how's what we're doing any different than just, like, what they're doing we're going to a local forest and gathering black walnuts we're just not going to the collecting center we're not going to the processing unit like you know value added processing home we're we're uh or center we're, we're we're just bypassing two of those um hubs in a traditional accepted system and going directly from the forest to to the brew house it's awesome that must create some supply uh, concerns if you can't find something once in a while. Oh, sure. But that's part of the story. It's right. like, sorry, we can't do a pawpaw this beer this year. There were no pawpaws. Right. Oh, what's a pawpaw? Well, I mean, if all I have is an opportunity to tell you what a pawpaw is, then I'm doing my job because our mission is to connect people to the land and to one another, right? And we might be able to do it not directly through the beer itself, but through the story of that beer or of that ingredient. Sweet. And then my other random question is, with the, the planned growth, I imagine you guys will have to expand quite a bit, or do you have a lot of capacity here? No, we have to, to yeah, we have to expand. So where will that, where will the money for that come from? Will you have to take on more investors, bank loans, or well, I mean, can you that's why we're here. growth? If uh, you brought your checkbook, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, uh, oh gosh. So we're... We're facing a really interesting time in the craft beer world because um, conventional wisdom says wait, wait it out. Um, wait what out? Wait out the market. Don't grow right now because equipment's still expensive. Hmm. There's still breweries opening up and it's getting crowded and all that. Like wait and see what happens. Um, but our business right now and all the things that we're doing is saying solve this capacity problem now don't wait don't anticipate don't bank your future growth on um what could happen in the market um plan for your own future so we're in the middle of deciding what that means and how we go about our growth plan how we fund it who funds it how we answer all those questions all right it's tough i don't know i mean we are looking at an off-site the need that we have Markets aside is for an off-site production facility to go from 12 barrels at a time to 30 barrels at a time and just get scrappier in lowering our cost of goods so we can compete against breweries that have that, that scale and make delicious beer at a very low price point. Um, but it may be that we look at other ways of going about it instead of going into a 60,000 square foot warehouse and going on the production side, maybe we do another full steam like this in another location. It's hard for me to see that because I don't know how we replicate this because it's so unique and so its own thing. Um, Cause this isn't really exactly a strip mall kind of like turnkey type operation. It's got its character and foibles and history and part of our look and vibe and all of that. Um, so uh, you can see that I haven't reconciled that fully. I don't know the answer, but we're we're, um, we're, we have to figure it out because we're crammed for space right now. Great. Well, 
It's been a long one. I want to respect your time. I know you guys are opening soon, so thank you yeah. very much, Sean. Yeah, I hope I didn't talk too long. Congrats on the growth. Thanks. Can I give a social media shout out? Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Where can people find you? Yeah. So uh, I'm at Full Steam on Twitter, um, and at Full Steam Brewery on Instagram, and of course on on the Facebook. Um, and then I just started. I broke out. We were talking about this earlier. I broke out. Um, I, I did social media for Full Steam for since the beginning, but now I have my own, which is Sean Lily Wilson, L I L L Y, Sean Lily Wilson, uh, on Instagram and on on Twitter. Um, so that's me and then the brewery itself. Hey, right on. And I'll put links to all that in the show notes for this interview. Yay. Did you make it through all the way through? <laughs> you should. Oh, you know what? Whoever did should you, uh, say, say hi on Twitter and tell, tell, tell me that you did. And, and uh, we'll, we'll give you at the very least a virtual high five. Right on. And next time you're in Durham, North Carolina, be sure to come by Full Steam Brewery and grab a beer. Please do. Let's go get one ourselves. Yes. All right. <laughs> There are so many lessons in here, from keeping it lean during your early years to using the right growth and distribution partners. But I think the biggest takeaway is how they've cultivated their brand through a combination of interesting products, seasonal limited edition offerings, and a unique atmosphere that serves the community well beyond just keeping them refreshed. Sean brings in local music, food, and craftspeople to entertain and teach their customers, whether they're there to drink his beer or not. That goes a long way to building goodwill for his brand. And the beer is good too. Really good. He and I sampled quite a few after I turned off the recorder. And suffice to say, I had to walk down the street, grab a burrito, and hang out in the coffee shop for a little while before I could drive home. From show notes, links to some of the brands and things we talked about, and more, head to this podcast's blog post on thebuildcycle.com. Next week, I've got Boyd Johnson, founder of Boyd Cycling, a high-end bicycle wheel manufacturer out of South Carolina. Until then, say hi to us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are at The Build Cycle on all three. Real quick, I have a super awesome favor to ask. Can you head to iTunes, subscribe to The Build Cycle podcast, and leave us a review? There's a link directly to our iTunes page on thebuildcycle.com, and it would make such a difference in helping us grow. So thanks, and remember your ABCs. Always be closing in on building your own business. Later.